Hello, my name is Kashka and welcome to Plant Voices podcast from Tapewood Community Garden, where we tell local stories about gardening, food, nature and climate change. So welcome everyone and thank you for coming to this discussion of Kiss the Ground movie in celebration of World Soil Day. And for those of you who don't know me, my name is Kashka Hempel and I work with PLANTS, which stands for People Learning About Nature in Tayport, which is a part of the Tayport Community Trust. And we run a community garden and lots of other projects in Tayport, encouraging local action on climate change. And we can do all that thanks to the funding from the Scottish Government's Climate Challenge Fund. And I'm joined today by my colleague, Helena Simmons, who works with me on Plants Carbon Conversations Programme and the Nine Wells Community Garden, and she'll be uh, chairing the discussion tonight. Um, so just to introduce the session, um, I just wanted to say that World Soil Day, uh, it, which is on the 5th of December this year, is an annual celebration of everything soil, and it's run by the Food and Agriculture Organization of the United Nations. And this year's theme is Keep Soil Alive, Protect Soil Biodiversity. Uh, and we thought Kiss the Ground documentary was a rather fitting movie to show in celebration of the secret powers of soil. Um, as you saw, it was very enthusiastic uh, in sharing ideas on how regenerating soils or keeping them alive can be a one-stop solution for balancing the climate, food security, flood prevention, et cetera, et cetera. And I hope everyone enjoyed watching it and was able to watch it before we started uh, this discussion and that you're all ready to, to have uh, lots of questions and, and, and ideas to exchange. So the, the movie itself, uh, as you uh, know, was very much based on the United State, States context. So we thought it would be very valuable to have a few experts uh, um, in our session to help us uh, put more of a local perspective on the movie and input into our discussion. And we've got three lovely um, panelists uh, joining us today. Uh, Dr. Jennifer Brown, a soil scientist from the Hutton Institute, Peter Christopher, who's our community gardener here in Tapeport Community Garden, and last but not least, David Aglin, the manager of Five Farm. Right, what we're going to do is uh, we're going to have two experts giving us just an up to five minute presentation on their feedback from the movie, and then we'll have about 25 minutes for discussion. If you can hold your discussion um, or your questions until the discussion or type them into the chat box if you think of them and don't want to forget them. Um, and we'll, we'll call on you at the end, but we'll have the two presentations um, and then we can go into discussion. So we're, we're going to start with Dr. Jennifer Brown. Uh, she's a soil expert from the ecological department of the James Hutton Institute. And you will provide, she'll provide us perspective on how regenerative farming can be applied to Scottish and UK agriculture. Um, your most, uh, Jennifer's most recent paper focused on soil carbon storage under different till no-till practices. Hi there, can you hear me okay? Yes, good. Um, I just want, well, thank you first for inviting me and for organizing this event. It's, it's good to see so many people interested in the issue. I thought the film was, it's always good to raise the profile of, of soil and the importance of soil health. Um, having said that, 
I think there was a lot of artistic license taken in, in the film. And I, I don't intend to sound over negative about it. I, I think it was overall good and it has a good mesh, uh, message. Um, but I just, I'm going to concentrate in, in one specific point because that is related to my research. Um, so uh, the film seems to suggest that uh, increasing soil carbon alone can solve the problem of, of climate change. Um, this is based in the Four Per Thousand initiative that was promoted by the uh, French uh, Ministry of Agriculture in 2015, and which is mentioned in the film. Um, the, so the original suggestion of this initiative that was that if we achieve this rate of concentration uh, for per thousand in all soils globally, uh, that would mean that we are absorbing CO2 emissions created by, by fuel and therefore we will hold uh, overall emissions. Um, the, the people who formulated this initiative later acknowledge that uh, it's not possible to take into account all soils globally. Uh, but um, this would only refer to agricultural soils. And even if we just look at agricultural soils, it might not be possible to achieve this rate of soil organic carbon in every soil. So um, soil organic carbon storage uh, depends on many factors, including climate. And in temperate climates like we have in the UK, uh, rates of accumulation are, are slower. Um, also, soils that have that are originally relatively high in carbon um, have a more limited capacity to absorb even more carbon. You know, so, soils that are initially at a very uh, poor state, uh, if they are treated properly, will increasingly accumulate carbon until they reach a plateau, and then it would accumulate. So it's not realistic to think that we can achieve in every soil that rate of um, storage every year. So it's that, that was my main problem with the, with the film. Um, um, there are a few other things that um, are big statements. Uh, and I think the problem is that that detracts for the, from the overall message. Um, but I think, having said that, all the negative things, um, I think it is very important uh, in that it recognizes uh, re the role of re regenerative agriculture. But I think we should look at regenerative agriculture as the overall aim to improve uh, the health of the soil. But the individual management practices that we have to choose to achieve that should be context specific. So I have carried research as well in, in Scotland with looking at no-till and minimum tillage in relation with soil carbon. And we have seen also variable results. Um, and no-till works, uh, it tends to work from the point of view of soil carbon when uh, it's done in combination with other management practices like so, uh, rotations, cover crops, etc. But uh, zero till also presents other problems that people not, don't mention uh, sometimes. Um, for example, farmers that apply uh, zero till tend to apply more herbicides to be able to control weeds. So uh, in, in all these management practices 
this is a trade-off of what we want to achieve. Uh, and that's why I think we have to be worried about blanket solutions. Um, but one message that is uh, important and is highlighted in the film is that organic matter is very important and it's important to um, always restore organic matter into the soil. And that is going to uh, prevent land degradation and it's going to improve uh, soil functioning. So that in, in itself is very important, even if it doesn't achieve uh, the reverting climate change. Thank you, Jennifer. Is that um, that's that's five minutes? That's been fantastic. I'm sure there'll be a lot of questions um, later. Peter, um, we're going to ask you to have your five minutes now. Peter Christopher is plants community gardener and horticulturalist, and has over thirty years of gardening experience. Um, and I'm hoping that he will talk a little bit about how the regenerative methods can be applied to the Tayport community garden and in growing food at home. You're on mute, Peter. Thank you, pardon. Typical uh, Zoom disease, isn't it? Hi, everyone. Um, yes, Kirsty and I have been on board as the uh, Tapor Community Gardeners. I've been there for four years, but I've actually been a gardener for 40 years, not 30. So um, there we go. Um, the film made me think that uh, what's gone around has come around in terms of the message because i have here a book the living soil published by eve balfour in 1943 and it's a first edition actually it's rather nice and it's got wonderful wonderful title for the chapters, such as medical evidence, decline in health, humus, circumstantial evidence, and then basically whole diets, and what are we going to do with farming after the war? And then the farming after the war was led by such luminaries, such as Lawrence D. Hills, who is undoubtedly the father of modern organic gardening. Um, this is a well-thumbed book that Kirsty and I have been using. See, it's fallen to bits since the 1970s. And here is a wonderful book that uh, is his autobiography, which I would recommend if you want to find out what's actually been going on in the organic movement in Britain over the last 60, 70 years. So as I say, it's nothing new. And uh, I saw the film and I thought, hang on, we've been banging on about this stuff for a long time. And I'm really heartened to say that it is taking off in the farming community in Scotland, probably Britain as a whole, because you just have to listen to the archers and there's advice about how to farm that's what the Archers was for, apart from a soap opera. And they're talking about mixed herbal lays for grazing, for example. And these are a wonderful way in which animals can be raised healthily on a mixed diet. And what they're eating is not just ryegrass that's sown for a week and then got, you know, grazed after a few months. 
it is a system whereby sustainable crops can be put in uh, on a rotation business. And that, of course, brings me to what we're doing at the Tayport Community Garden. This is a very small scale, of course, you know, it's trying to, I think the Tayport Community Garden is a teaching resource as much as anything else. It's a resource to show people how food can be grown sustainably in their local environment and uh, with community uh, involvement. So obviously we've been trying to show best practice in terms of composting and uh, soil health. And of course, soil health also leads to human health, which was alluded to in a great deal in that film. And of course, one of the, the most oh, wonderful things is the uh, recent uh, Mycobacterium vaccae uh, the fact that some soil bacteria can actually promote mental health, which we all need to be of in this particular time, by um, you know upping the serotonin levels in people. So there's a it's a huge subject, and we've got very little time to cover it. But one thing that um, I would say that we've done at the Tayport Community Garden, and I've done in other gardens that I've made. That's that's my trade is the introduction of volcanic rock dust. Um, I was a trustee for a charity called the SEER Centre, which stood for the Scottish Environmental Earth Regeneration Centre, which uh, the couple, Cammie and Moira Thompson, Cammie has sadly passed but um, they started this in the late 70s of putting rock dust on, this was, halfway up a mountain in um, Pit Lockery in Inukdu in, um, and mixing rock dust with that very compost that was being shown to us on the programme of um, brown waste. And then having sessions whereby it was soil only, rock dust and soil, rock dust, soil and organic compost from the local authority. And they were having fantastic results. And in fact, I've invited the person that is now the supplier of rock dust, uh, Jennifer Brodie, to join us. And so she will be able to answer questions better than me about the uh, benefits of rock dust later on. And so to finish up, I would just invite everyone, if they've got questions about what we do, is to come and visit us and um, also have a look at some of the webinars that we've been recording over the last few months of this business. Um, to get some of the uh, tips and um, also some of the problems that we've had. And um, I'm, I'm really excited to be here and dying to hear from everyone else. Over. Thank, thanks, Peter. That's great. The other person that we've got here who's um, ready and willing to answer questions is um, David Aglin, who is a farms manager at Belburney Farm in Central Fife. Um, and they're actually using the agricultural, the regenerative agricultural methods, which were described in the film. So, you know, if you've got any specific questions about how they translate into Scottish um, uh, farmlands, he's he's here for answering questions, um, which is super. Um, so we're going to move on to the questions. There's a few questions have been um, popped into the discussion and we'll go through them Actually, can can we maybe ask David to um, 
chip in his comments right now and oh, sure. say what he's doing on the farm. If, if you're willing if he, to do if that, okay. David. With that. Yep. Um, evening, everybody. Um, just point of interest, Peter. Um, my employer is a descendant of Eve Balfour. Um, you at Bob Ernie. So that's quite interesting you picked up in that book. <clears throat> um, we, we're a large mixed farm here in Central Fife, and we are trying to teach ourselves how to farm in a more regeneratively fashion. I'm not going to come in and say we are farming wholly regeneratively yet because there's quite a few challenges to overcome um, to succeed. Um, but we're certainly heading in that direction and getting better and better at it year on year. Um, with mixed farm, we grow cereals, um, uh, legumes, uh, vegetables, root crops, and we have a herd of cows for producing beef as well. Um, as far as the film is concerned, I have to admit my broadband packed up halfway through. Um, but uh, from what I did see, it's it, actually it was it was good enough for for the general public. I would say, um, as Jennifer pointed out, I think if you're more uh, technically minded in the subject, then there are perhaps a few simplifications within it. But the, the broad um, the broad story. Was, was good enough, I thought, and, and fairly clear to understand. Thanks, David. Um, so I'm going to go back to the chat, and I think the first question was actually from Bob. Um, would you like to unmute yourself and ask the question? Yeah. Um... On the film, obviously it was in in, in the uh, in California, I think. Um, they were advocating non-till and um, no-till sort of equipment, ploughing in farming. I, is that a possibility to do that in Scotland, particularly organically? Jennifer, you where, look like you're... where you do, you don't you don't disturb the soil. Um, <laughs> What, what do you do about what do you do? You drill the seed. What do you do about the weeds? Yeah, so that that is uh, what I was mentioning before. So no till it, it is practiced in Scotland to a um, small scale, I would say. Um, the problem of weeds is uh, yeah, it's important in no till, and what most farmers do is to apply lots of herbicides. So. Um, you know, a lot of people would have a problem with that concept of not disturbing the soil, but then using lots of chemicals. Um, for for some farmers, it, it can cre create problems of compaction, so it won't be suitable for every uh, type of soil. Um, there's been farmers, uh, what they would do is to practice no-till for a number of years, and then when they are seeing that they are having problems with, with soil compaction, maybe they will plow once and then carry on no-till for a few more years. So this is what I'm saying that is, I don't think it's helpful to try to apply a, a blanket 
management option for everywhere, everyone and everywhere in the world, because um, how well it works, it depends on many factors, including climate, soil type, um, and rotations and other things. Um, you, you're muted, Robert, um, can't hear you. I'm, I'm just a gardener and I just do that as no dig um, and, you know, um, no chemicals. But what you're saying is on a larger scale, particularly in Scotland, it's more difficult. Would it, would it be possible in, in, in other countries? It is practiced in, in other countries with uh, some success, um, especially in tropical and arid countries. Um, okay. it, becomes, it becomes more important because uh, no-till is good at uh, preserving more soil moisture. So if you are in very dry conditions, then that is an advantage. Um, but I'm not, um, well, I don't have enough information of um, how many places are practicing, practice, practicing it in a large scale without the use of herbicides. So okay. I'll, I'll okay, be surprised that there are many places. No problem. Good. Thank you. I can add comment to that. Um, we do practice no-till um, in Scotland. Um, most of the problems that Jennifer alluded to are generally a result of bad rotation and not thinking through the whole process in a, in a more holistic fashion. Um, nature doesn't till anywhere in the world. It just drops a seed on the ground and it grows. We just have to find the right seeds to grow. And we've had experience here where by changing the rotation, we were actually able to use less herbicides um, at certain points in the rotation. It's not easy. Um, the biggest problem, and I didn't get to the point in the film that probably talked about this, is that to do it successfully in, in Europe, certainly, um, at the minute, we rely on glyphosate. Whether you like it or love it, it's the only way we can do no-till in Scotland currently. Um, I was funny having a conversation with somebody yesterday about organic no-till and how we could do it. We probably could do it, but we'd probably only be able to generate cash crop every two years, every second year. And the inter the year in between would either be for livestock. And of course we get rated at the minute, you know, cows are bad, they're causing the climate to warm up, etc. etc. So it seems there's no ideal solution that's going to please everyone. Um, to do it in this country we need no tilt, we need glyphosate, which is bad. But if we don't do it, we're not doing the soil or the soil biology or the any favors either so it's going to be a balance whatever whatever outcome we choose it's all everything's compromised really yeah it's not there's no i think i mentioned this earlier i think there's no silver bullet is there to fix everything it's always going to be compromises much like life um it's just we have to decide where where we draw the lines i suppose um diana you asked a question which It'd be good if you could clarify just what exactly you were asking. If you could unmute. Diana, still here? 
Diana, would you like to um, ask your question? You're on mute. Sure. Um, well, it's it's less for the farming sector. It's sort of for the cities because glyphosate is heavily used in 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 Dundee, for example. And um, we're trying because we think actually that the majority of people is against the heavy usage of glyphosate because it's also toxic to us. And um, so I I'm not sure if I. If I heard Jennifer right, uh, she said herbicides do still need to be applied. Um, it's just, um, you know, because a lot of cities, like for example, Paris has been pesticide free for over 15 years. And uh, there are other cities in the UK that also have now pledged to be pesticide free. and. Um, you know, and in Dundee, we use several tons a year, and it's it's um, quite bad, and, and, and we are having trouble to convince our council. I think there's a, um, both Fife and Dundee Council are having consultations at the moment about how they manage their grasslands, I think. Um, that might be something that you could have a look and see if you can feed into at the moment. I don't know if anyone else would like to comment on that? They, um, the ideas of cities and town councils going pesticide free and selling herbicide free is a wonderful idea. And the only technology apart from hand weeding at the minute that seems to overcome it is one whereby they use steam to effectively um, burst open the plant cells. And that's fine. We've looked into it talk to the company that designed it to see whether we can scale it up and it any good on the farm. And the answer is it's it's hugely energy intensive because basically you're boiling water all the time to produce the steam to put on the ground to deal with the plants. So again, it comes back to this compromise, a little bit of pesticide or a huge amount of fossil fuel to heat the water up. I've, um, I've, heard, I've heard of people say, I think it's in Paris, that they get... Um, their residents to adopt a bit of land, a bit of land outside their ho their home, and that's how they're sort of managing the the lack of um, not using pesticides, but then obviously then needing a lot more intensive hand weeding. Is that they've actually said, well, if you want this, that's great, but you have to put the work in, sort of thing. It's just yes. one way around it. It would be fascinating to see the residents of Glenrothes um, <laughs> taking to the mat. Um, okay, the next question was from Jennifer. Jennifer Brody. Yeah. Hi there. Do I have to speak? <laughs> yes. Well, you don't have to. I can say it as well if you'd rather. Yeah. Oh, no, I'm fine. I'm fine. Yeah. It was a point that Peter, the point Peter brought up his thing was like nothing new and I wrote profile that that we with my work with the Remen volcanic rock dust I do know most of the issues raised but what I'm desperately keen to do is to raise the profile this at in the Glasgow um, climate change conference next year soil hardly ever gets mentioned and we discuss between ourselves um, what are we going to do to get 
to raise the profile on a national and international basis. I've been to the conference Groundswell. Um, it's Groundswell UK is held amongst farmers and it is getting listened to. But my question is, how do we get this discussed and talked about as a real, it's not, as the other Jennifer said, it's not the, the panacea, it's not, you know, the four, four per 1,000, the 0.04% raising the carbon matter, but it's got such a significant part to play. What, what can be done to, to get it brought up in every discussion on climate rather than just reducing emissions? We, we can put the carbon back into the soil. Okay, that's me. <laughs> so it was more of a more of a comment than a than a, or a, unless anyone's got a good answer, what we can do to raise the profile of soil, um, for. Um, hey, Helena. Peter. Yep. Go ahead, Peter. Um, I think that uh, one thing that the film did bring up was the issue of um, farming for biomass for various energy requirements, as well as carbon sequestration. And I think that there is, there had been a very um, proto movement at this on farmers being asked to grow willow for, for biomass. But I think there is a huge uh, potential for this to be expanded for Scottish farmland. So that uh, if people are gonna be eating less meat so we don't have so much pasture, we can turn the pasture into that particular type of ecosystem that they were doing in Africa on the film, whereby you have these large grasses, such as miscanthus, which will grow a particular variety, I know, will grow up to 12 feet per year. And then you have like the Dakota farmer, mixed species growing underneath. So it is like a prairie system to which you have grazing animals foraging in, in it. And um, that's one thing that out of that film that I thought we could do that here on a huge scale, but still be able to not only produce meat in a sustainable fashion, uh, regenerate soils, but also have a system of biomass. And so I think that the, uh, as I say, the solutions are out there. It's a question of big government to take them and run with them. Okay, thank you. Does anyone else it's, like to... If I just may add a comment, we have to remember that when you're talking about pharma, you're talking about people's businesses. And there are a huge number of very laudable ideas out there that trying to turn the reality into profit at the end of the day is very, very difficult, as it were. And you've policy coming from government, you've campaign groups coming from other directions and rules and regulations that what would seem the right answer just sometimes aren't, aren't possible, aren't even allowed, as it were, and don't, don't provide a profit. Um, and that's, that's the problem we've got to somehow educate people to, to overcome or we need to get paid more for what we produce and then we can, we can, we can provide the sustainability of the profits there. And then there's also for the farmers to be paid for capturing carbon, to get it onto the political agenda. Um, if that can be brought in at a political level, that, that would help, I would I'm sure. Yeah, but unfortunately at the minute, nobody can actually agree on... When we talk about carbon 
our carbon um, carbon footprint in agriculture at the minute, they don't even include what we sequester into the soil um, in the calculation. So until we can agree to, until it can be agreed what we sequester already and what our actual footprint is, it's, it's not going anywhere at the minute. Mm. Jennifer, did you want to say something? Yes, yeah, sir. I just wanted to to add to that. Um, well, the this is actually something that the film seemed to be against uh, paying farmers subsidies for uh, in general, and it's probably because the way subsidies are paid in the U.S. Um, in here, there. Well, the the system is changing as we come out of the EU. But there are measures in the in in policy subsidy to pay farmers for ecosystem services, which I think is right, because if farmers are providing a service for everyone, uh, being to support biodiversity or for carbon sequestration, then they should be paid and support for for doing that. Um, so that is. I mean, it's not completely off the, the policy agenda, Jennifer, and um, something that is very much in the policy agenda at the moment is peatlands and the restoration of peatlands or halting the degradation of peatlands, which half of the carbon that we have in soils in Scotland are in peatlands, so that's very important. But I agree that we have to maybe talk more about carbon in agriculture and, and what management uh, aspects are good for us in Scotland to to make the most of um, sequestering carbon into agriculture. Yeah, I think I think it's probably. I I would like to just get my to put two, two pences worth in here. Um, that I think one of the best things that all gardeners can do to um, actually benefit the soil carbon is to not use peat in their gardening, because um, peat is still being used horticulturally and it's never going to um, sequester as much carbon in your garden as it would do if it was left in an intact peat bog. Um, and I, I feel like the conversation is starting to come up around that, but I, I really think it's something that's worth um, really sort of making sure that you, you're very conscious when you're buying your compost. If it doesn't say peat free, it probably has peat in it. So you should, you know, definitely be buying peat free. Um, okay, I'm just going to, we've got quite a few things still to say. I'm just going to quickly, if you don't mind, Carmen, just mention that we've had a recommendation for another film, which is Grounding, um, which you can look out for. And the next question, I think, is, you've mentioned about glyphosate. Um, Simon, you've mentioned about heirloom perennial crops. Would you like to bring that into the discussion? Are you there, Simon? No. So Simon's comment was, if you farm heirloom perennial crops that can dominate in that local area, you wouldn't need glyphosate on a no-dig plot, even for large-scale farming in Scotland. Do you agree with that, David? Uh, yeah, essentially, that's that comment is entirely correct. Um, unfortunately, our markets don't want heirloom 
species and varieties they want. They're very homogenous, modern varieties that produce the maximum output for the next process in the system, which might be the whiskey distiller, it might be the meat processor, etc. So we've we've been forced over the last 60, 70 years down this road of more and more um, consistent produce because it suits the manufacturing process further down the line. Not, it does not benefit us, particularly as growers, only in that modern varieties produce bigger yields. But actually the quality is probably less poorer than it was 70 years ago. We've just got 10 times as much of it. Um, so the comment itself, I think is correct. It's how we get back into the marketplace on a large scale when the consumer and the processor is looking for uniformity day after day, week after week. They don't want they don't want one variety of something one week and another one next week because that's one one that grows locally and is sustainable. They want the same thing every week. It's almost a bigger discussion we need to get back to the general public. Actually, if you want food produced in such a sustainable fashion, you're going to have to have change your expectations of what your food is going to look like. Um, from a brewer's point of view, it'd be lovely if we could do that. But my hands are slightly tied. So, yeah, good comment, very valid. Excellent. Um, yeah, I think this is, um, yeah, everything's going to change. If we, business as usual is the problem. So, you know, how do can you I, maybe make everything change? Um, yeah. Can I add something? Yes. Um, there was some uh, mentioning of uh, using livestock um, to in, in in the process, and I was mentioning in the film as well. And even if livestock is used in system of uh, grasslands and not in the intensive way they were comparing in the film, there are still emissions associated with livestock, and and one of the problems of livestock production is methane uh, gas. So, you know, there's always a trade-off. It's not that having this system with permanent grassland and having livestock is all good. It's still having a big impact, impact in the environment. So it's, it's a complex issue. It's not, it's not as easy as it's uh, been projected sometimes. Yeah, I think that can I just coming back can to I that, with a wee fact about the, the methane? The methane produced from ruminant livestock is part of the carbon cycle. It breaks down after a 10-year period uh, into CO2, which ultimately goes back into the grass and is cycled back into the soil and through the livestock. So the methane that we talk about in the atmosphere that comes from livestock is not a problem. It's extra methane that's, that's the problem. There's always been methane from ruminants in the atmosphere, even when the bison are in the, the plains in America. Yeah, can I just come back to that? Into that? Uh, so, I mean, greenhouse gases are not bad per se. CO2 is not bad per se. Methane is not bad per se. Because if we didn't have greenhouse gases, the temperature in the, in the earth would be too cold for human life. So it's not, it's not a matter of, you know, greenhouses are, are bad. The problem is that we are putting into the atmosphere more than what what we can, um, more than we should. So it's uh, it's increasing the the greenhouse effect and and creating a problem. So I'm I'm not I'm not saying we should eliminate livestock and not have anything to do with it. But 
I cannot say that it's not having an impact in the, in the environment because it is. And methane uh, is more powerful in the um, greenhouse effect than CO2. Um, there are other technologies that are being explored at the moment, by the way, to try to minimize the methane produced by cows. And in our systems in, in Scotland, it's not as, as bad as in other systems in the United States. So if you feed the cattle with lots of grain, then they would produce more methane. So again, it's not simple, but you know, we have to be aware of this. Yeah, thank you. Um, just, we've got five, just under five minutes to um, try and get through the last few questions. Simon, who, couldn't, we couldn't hear before as, as made a comment here that as a model for profitable farming in cold climates, you can look to the Krimaterhof by Sepp Holzer up on the mountain in Austria on Ridgedale Farm in Sweden by Richard Perkins, and the author of a book called Regenerative Agriculture. One of Richard's strongest messages is about how to practice regenerative agriculture on a large scale using cows and chickens in as profitable a manner as possible and more profitably than conventional herbicide-based farming. I guess, again, that will depend on you having the um, market for for the whatever you produce. Um, someone's asking, Elizabeth, um, you had a question about the peat. Uh, do you want to ask that? No. Uh, oh, okay. You mentioned earlier to avoid the use of peat um, mm -hmm. for gardeners in the garden. Mm -hmm. um, I was wondering if that is the same as uh, peat moss. If it's um, like if it looks like compost, then you don't want to be using that. If it's the sphagnum, which is the moss, which is still well, it's usually brown but lo still looks like a plant, and um, that may not that that can be grown um, out with the. Um, plant uh, with the box, but you probably want to check where it come from. Okay. Okay. Um, Keith has also got a peat-based comment. Would you? Oh, it's actually it's you, Carol, isn't it? You're under the name of Keith, of Keith White. Oh, you're muted. You're still muted, Carol. It's Julie. It's Julie. Sorry. Uh, hi. Terrible hi. name. Sorry about that. Yeah. Um, we share, share the screen. Um, yeah, it just occurred to Well, I, I mean, I do buy peat-free compost, but it is a lot more expensive than um, peat compost, which, again, you know, talking about sort of policy and government policy, I mean, if, if peat was taxed and so therefore, you know, the peat-based compost cost more than the non-peat-based compost, people would immediately turn over to it because they're obviously just buying the cheapest thing in B&Q, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. I think I think that's the sort of thing that we could all be writing to our M MPs and MSPs to to try and get it on their agenda, I guess, as well. It's supposed to have been um, phased out by the companies themselves. It was left to them to do it on their own without policies, but that's obviously not working. So mm. I think it does need to have a different method. Um, 
just quickly, Kashka, someone's asking how long the movie's available for today. Do you know? I'm not sure, just try it. Okay. <laughs> it's also, you can buy it, uh, rent it on Vimeo very cheaply. And uh, if, if our license runs out, it's really, I think it's a pound or something you pay to, to watch it. So it's not really expensive to access it. And um, the last one is that, yes, I think all ruminants do produce methane to greater or lesser degrees. Um, okay, I think- Sorry, now... except for kangaroos. <laughs> Just on that <laughs> except for kangaroos, really? <laughs> I didn't know that. Cool. What's so special? Gen Jennifer, can you tell us what's special about kangaroos? How do they fix it? <laughs> We can we can I, then genetically engineer the cows so <laughs> yeah. they have kangaroo stomachs. Or is that we a no no? Kangaroos in Scotland. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I don't know why. I don't know the the ecology of it. But apparently, they don't produce methane, or they produce it in, in very small quantities compared to cows and other ruminants. Okay, when we're all, all eating kangaroo meat in uh, four years' time, you'll know you heard it here first. <laughs> Uh, okay, so I'm, I'm going to finish just here with the, the discussions that has been really interesting. And I think I think the biggest thing that um, I've taken from it is just how complicated an issue it is. Thank you, everyone, for, for joining in and having this really interesting discussion. And I never thought kangaroos were going to feature. Um, so thank you so much to our experts as well for feeding into the discussion that has been um, it's been really, really interesting and really useful. And, and again, I think the, the silver bullet is still eluding us, but um, as, as, as with all things in life. Thank you for listening to the Plant Voices podcast. For more tapered community garden stories and for information on how to get involved, visit our website on www.tapodgarden.org.